Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Uh, it is the 3rd of January. It is the first day of work of the new year, right? Is that right? Are you first not working? Day? You don't know? I guess so. <laughs> All three of us have jobs where it just bleeds, so we have no idea what day is what. Yeah, I did a lot of work over the break, actually. Yeah. Um, <laughs> mostly because my family went out of town and I was stay- I stayed here. And um, I just tried to get as far ahead as possible. Um, Tammy, Andy, how are you doing? Good. Today was the first snow of the winter in uh, Philly. It didn't stick, but I guess. Oh, it snowed? Oh, it didn't. I think it's sticking in like New York and Boston and those places. But uh, And apparently DC, did you see that tweet this morning from some guy who was like basically, I think he's like some sort of politician or something. (laughs) And his tweet was basically that, uh, you know, I, I don't know where he got this from, but like his take was that DC cared about Black Lives Matter, but it couldn't clear the snow off the street. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was like the most racist thing I've seen. <laughs> so connected. I know. The only <laughs> connection I could think of was that you remember DC had that sign on the streets of Black Lives Matter. Yeah. It's like the yellow side of maybe he was thinking about that. He's like, but you could paint Black Lives Matter on the street. You can't clear this. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> oh my God. It's the most randomly racist thing that I've seen in a long time. It's just like <laughs> his the association in his mind was so clear. You know, he's like, it's like the snow on the street. You know, he's like, he's like, goddamn Black Lives Matter. <laughs> I really think snowplow politics are the new broken windows. Like, people lose their entire careers over snowplow politics. It's well, yeah. Insane. Yeah. I mean, you know, service politicians or whatever it's called, right? Like, uh, yeah. most people end up being elected or not reelected <laughs> based on whether they, like, cleared the streets. or. Totally. If, I guess now it's like if there's if the schools opened on time. You know, which seems to be every politician is so desperately trying to keep the schools open. It's like actually kind of horrifying um, seeing the trade off calculations go through. Right. Like Eric Adams was clearly never, ever going to close the schools in New York City. Right. Like that was um, (laughs) like he needs to start out with like a am not like he just seems like he's fueled by so much bravado like that. You know, like I am not going to do what the other libs do. And um, I just can't imagine he's ever going to close down those schools. It doesn't matter how many kids get coronavirus. I don't know. Maybe it's not a bad idea, you know, but. Um, in the our moment, our, our kid just... was home all last week and we we're going insane. So I'm a, I have a lot more sympathy now for the, uh, the right, school voters right. who yeah. vote based on yeah. schooling. <laughs> Andy was radicalized for one week with me. Yeah. I'm Republican now, by the way. It's a new podcast. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Andy, Andy's gonna like Andy's kid is gonna be at home on Tuesday, and he's gonna look at his kid. He's gonna be like, "God damn, Black Lives Matter." <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna be like screaming. He's gonna be like, "Oh my god, you know this is all Duray's fault." <laughs> <laughs> Tammy, how's Korea? Is it snowing in Korea? Korea's good. No, it's been pretty warm here. Um, The holidays were kind of not really a thing because Christmas isn't really a big holiday here. It's more of a dating holiday. Like Couples go out and so all the the streets are filled with kids dressed up instead of families. And New Year's is kind of split. Like some people celebrate solar and some people celebrate lunar. Oh, really? Right. Yeah, it's chill. Mm -hmm. No one does both. 
Or I, I feel like we, I feel like I do both. And so I'm always sending happy new year's messages for like right. a three month period every year, you know? Is there um, right. a special meal or event that happens in new year's? Yeah. We eat tokok, the Which rice what? cake soup. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I made it this year. Yeah. Oh, you did? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we made that in the morning. It's really easy so, to make. Yeah. It's really easy. You just have to, the broth has to be good. You know, that guy, uh, I forget his name. He's a YouTube star. He's a Korean chef guy who um, Eric he has all these branded restaurants. No, no, he's Korean, Korean, not Korean American. But he, uh, yeah, he. I watched a lot of his videos and his thing is just like, you don't need specific meat. You can just use pulgogi meat for everything. You know? <laughs> and so like a duck like is supposed to use brisket, you know? I don't have brisket, oh, so I just, okay. I just threw a bunch of like sukiyaki meat <laughs> in a pot oh, and really? boiled it. <laughs> yeah, but it ended up being really good, actually, and it cooked really quickly because obviously like the broth, you know, comes out more quickly out of that. Anyway, I made it. That's good. And, um, we just use like a, an anchovy dashi broth. Oh, that's right, because you don't use I don't meat. eat, yeah. So I cheat and eat like fish broth, but I don't. Is it good without the meat broth? Yeah, it's delicious. That's all I've ever had. I mean, I'm, ske- I'm skeptical. Yeah, I'm sure you would be like, this is a very lackluster broth. But <laughs> you use egg- <laughs> do you use eggs in it? I use eggs. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so it's not a vegan. No, no. Well, I guess with the dashi, it wouldn't be vegan. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah. Vegetarian yeah. either. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you would make it without that, though. Like, is there some sort of mushrooms? There must be some sort of mushrooms and kombu. Of it. Yeah, you right. can do Sh- sh- yeah. like shiitakes or right. something like that. Um, yeah, we use like, kombu tashima in Korean kombu, and then uh, the anchovy and the onion. Yeah. Yeah. What What did you eat, Andy? Uh, so my wife made a Japanese New Year's thing, which is uh it might be a similar soup. It was like, I don't know. It was like a dashi based soup with uh, grilled mochi. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I had similar. that too. It's good. Yeah. And it's, it's I a, had that too. Yeah. And then black beans, which I don't know what makes them black beans. or They're technically called black soybeans, kuromame in Japanese. Oh, yeah. yeah. Korean. How did you too. have those? It's super sweet in Korea, though. Uh, I mean, she boiled them with like sugar and soy sauce, according to the recipes. Right. But That's okay. what Korean Same. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But I don't understand it, why. It they sounds have like they've been like injected. Soybeans. It feels like they're, they taste like they've been injected with simple syrup. Yeah. Super Korea. sweet. Yeah. They're <laughs> yeah. really good. They're, they're so my first favorite. Still. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had that too, actually, because after I cooked breakfast, I went to my friend's house and had a Japanese breakfast. Yeah, the um, and oh, really? You the, had it twice. <laughs> had it twice, and the the the, Jeff, the Japanese soup was delicious. It was so good, um, and I actually felt like you know it's very clear broth, right? And yeah, it's very clean. And it's I don't like yellowish. It feels dashi. racist, but it's like you know, <laughs> like you know, the dirty Korean. I know you were just talking about clean, your nasty beef and the, broth and, and, the, and the clean Japanese. <laughs> don't don't put beef in your soup; and it'll be nice and clean. Yeah, I'm. I'm more. We, I guess I had to do Japanese style. <laughs> but it was really good. Oh, um, yeah. that sounds yeah, good. It was good. So I had that too. Anyway, let's get on with the show. That's enough. That's Happy enough New Year. Catching up. Andy's a Republican. He blames Black <laughs> yeah. Lives Matter for if his kids didn't go to And Tammy is like, uh, I don't know. Chris is not a big deal in Korea. All right, we've got it. Um, okay. We have a couple things we want to talk about this week. The first is we wanted to sort of take assessment. Look, it's been like a very strange, I don't know if it's a strange, but I would say that it, and I don't even know if tragic is the right word, 
but it is a lot of writers have died right and um you know uh bell hooks right um eve babbitt joan didion i'm forgetting somebody who am i forgetting um there were so many deaths in a very short period betty white Toward the end of the <laughs> not over right. Betty White um, and Desmond Tutu. Oh yeah, writers, but <laughs> that one was kind of that one was sad actually. Like she had just tweeted that she was excited I about. Um, I know. People uh, magazine just did a whole cover uh, cover like, of, right, of her. Right. Yeah. Oh, Greg Tate also died. Oh yeah, right? Greg the, Tate. Um, of course, yeah. Great the cultural critic. Cultural <laughs> critic for the Village Voice, who I think is probably as influential honestly as as a lot of the other writers that we've written about right just because he seemed to occupy this very specific space for people who are learning to write about music at a certain time right and um since he was so singular he became the only template really to write about to write about a lot of like black art like modern black art in a way that felt really like sort of on the pulse and also elevated like i don't know like it it's like, could you i don't like him and fred moten kind of like yeah in right, that kind of right. universe of black like arts, maybe right? dream hampton in a certain type mm-hmm. of way too right from sure, if you yeah. want to go to the early days of the source like these are all people i think i read when i was in high school without knowing any of their bylines you know like i would just sort of like i realized at some point that i had read like almost all the dream hampton <laughs> like everything dream hampton had read without knowing who Dream Hampton was just because as I just read the source like religiously as That's a kid. Cool. Um, but uh, all these people have passed. And so we wanted to take some time to sort of talk about it, right? Like uh, I think we should talk about Bell Hooks, right? I think we should talk about Didion in some sort of way. Um, I don't know. I mean, we can talk about whatever else, but yeah, I mean, Tammy, you specifically wanted to talk about Bell Hooks. Like, what, why did you want to talk about Bell Hooks? Yeah, well, I was thinking, because Jay, you wrote in your Times newsletter about Didion and her influence on you and kind of like what she meant to the world of writers. And Andy and I were kind of chatting also about Jonathan Spence, the Chinese historian who died, but who was also a phenomenal writer and kind of the way he occupied his field. And then, of course, Hooks and how she really influenced so many feminist socialists, especially feminist socialists who are not white, you know, and, and they're thinking. And so it just seemed like a lot of sort of canonical people, like people who had, had somehow occupied their entire, you know, field and sort of set up these stylistic and kind of methodological influences have passed. So I was just thinking about like what that means for us and like what we feel like our inheritance after these folks are, you know, I mean, we talk like at Lux Magazine, uh, we've had Sarah Leonard on from from yeah. there before. We talk a lot right. about Bell Hooks and kind of like her style of writing and the way that she was able to bring a lot of people in and talk about ideas in a really like open-ended way that was inviting to people, you know, even though they were very dense and kind of philosophical. Um, so to me, like that's, that's like very important. And I, I don't know if there's like a particular Bell Hooks book that was influential for me. I think it's more just... I can think of a number of like talks and pieces that she's written, but it's more of just the kind of feeling like once you're in a Bell Hooks essay, you kind of know you are, you know, right. and that's right. the same feeling for, I think, for Spence or for a Didion. Yeah. So I was curious, you know, if you guys had feelings about, you know, them beyond what you wrote, Jay, or for you, Andy, about Spence and like what he means for Chinese historians who are trying to write in a popular way. Well, I mean, my guy is Jonathan Spence, who might be a little bit more obscure, but for listeners who've taken Chinese history, they probably know who he is. He's 
he was at Yale for many decades. Um, you know, Tammy said she never took his classes, but was aware of his influence. And he wrote like the textbook that is used in Chinese history um, classes. Um, and I was thinking, you know, I have thoughts about him and mostly about, uh, I guess, like periodization. Like what, what, what was the world that he came up in and how is it different than the current world, you know, that for someone who's mm-hmm. young and starting out. So maybe, you know, I have thoughts about that, but maybe to talk about the folks that you all have brought up in terms of Bell Hooks and Joan Didion, is it worth thinking about not just what you inherited or how you were influenced, but also how uh, you think that you're in a different world than they inhabited at their heyday and how like the next Joan Didion or the next Bell Hooks, like if they were young and in their prime in 2021, like how would they, how would things be different? Um, like how is today different than like the 1980s when Bell Hooks, you know, begins to write her stuff mm-hmm. or Joan Didion in the 60s and 70s? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And Bell Hooks. Jay, do you want to start with, with that? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I wrote about Joan Didion when Joan Didion passed and um, I don't know. It's an interesting question generationally because like, it seems like she was in some ways the last person of that generation to still be producing work that people paid attention to, right? Like um, certainly uh, Tom Wolf, who's like one of her non, you know, whatever, what's it called? New journalism. Yeah. Um, new journalism. Contemporaries. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you know, he's been dead for a while and, um, and you know, Mailer, who I guess just got canceled today, huh? Did I you know, see that? For some essay in the 50s, right? Yeah, the white Negro, <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I think, like another, yeah, I mean, I don't, there was a little publishing like, controversy on Twitter. I don't know if it was, I wonder if it was specifically about that or just like also his allegation, the allegations of domestic violence and just the person he right. was. But anyway, right. he doesn't really uh, seem like a model figure for our times right now. <laughs> right, right. Um, it's, uh, you know, like these sort of people who tried to write not creative nonfiction or even sort of began a idea of creative nonfiction that was like beyond what, I don't know, what like Joseph Mitchell did in The New Yorker or something like that, right? Which was uh, up in the old hotel for listeners who don't know. I don't know. Everyone should probably read that or like A.J. Liebling, right? Who sort of was at, a little bit after Mitchell, I think, or maybe around the same time, wrote a lot about boxing, but you know, sort of was sort of like the writer at the New Yorker for a while. And then you have like this generation that is really responding to the sixties. Right. Um, and Didion certainly was one of those. Right. So she, uh, I think she was 30 in 1967 and, um, had mostly been writing for fashion magazines, editing at fashion magazines, and Mm -hmm. then ends up going to the Haight-Ashbury and writes, uh, slashing towards Bethlehem. And then, for the next few years is writing these essays in part about herself is also writing fiction. Um, and then is also trying to have like a grasp of the, of what's happening around her. And I don't know what I find interesting about all of it. And Tammy, I don't know if you agree or disagree. Is that like, you know, like Joe Didion's politics during that period of time are like completely opaque. And also like, you know, when you actually get down to it are pretty like conservative, you know, she's like a deep Republican for, a lot of that period of time. She's like, I think she was a young Republican at Cal, you know, like she was in a sorority. <laughs> she like 
uh, is always identifying herself as like a fifth generation Californian, which is just like, yeah. And and then there's this like sort of her, the thing that I think really draws people towards her work is this sort of like dispassion, right? right? Which is always like very cool. And in a lot of ways, it's sort of like augmented by her persona, right? Which was like mostly expressed through very, very cool author photos, right? Like there's the famous (laughs) ones of her sitting in like a yellow Corvette that she owned where she looks like, I mean, you know, she looks incredibly cool, you know? Um, and there's ones of her smoking or whatever, right? Like she's like, kind of like a, like, it's like a literary person that you want to imagine when you want to imagine yourself as a literary person. But I don't know, like, you know, like I, I think I, what I was writing about was mostly like my frustration with, uh, with those essays, you know, those early essays, mm-hmm. because when I was a kid, there's sort of a template for how I could write and certainly I've stolen quite a bit from Joan Didion, which I don't think anyone who's written, who's read Joan Didion as, you know, chance upon any of my work would like, it's very obvious, (laughs) but, (laughs) but the, um, but the, I don't know. It was strange because it it ends up being like this, like, uh, well, why were you, why are young people who are trying to be writers like sort of entranced by what is ultimately conservative voice that almost certainly does not match up with their actual politics, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, like would somebody like right now in 2021 or in 2020, if someone had done like what Renata Adler did, like during the March to, um, you know, during the, one of the marches to, uh, out of Selma, right. Or what Joan Didion did during, in, slashing towards Bethlehem where it's just like sort of this totally dispassionate look, right? Um pointing out like very actually unimportant details that like are supposed to stand in for some <laughs> deep like dysfunction, you know, which like I mean like Renata Adler is basically just mocking that march, you know, in a lot of the in a lot of ways. And like uh but Joan Didion like does it in much more like sort of clever and in fact I would say somewhat like less honest way than Renata Adler. At least Renata Adler is just like I flew down here. Well, get a look at these people, you know. Um, Joan Didion, <laughs> Joan Didion is more like you know points out like there's a child on acid, you know, or like like her way of describing like the Black Panthers is like so like you know like the she's like get a load of these people type of thing, you know. Um, and I don't know. I, I find it really interesting why a conservative voice that's so clearly in retrospect conservative doesn't come across as conservative at the time. Why young people are really drawn to this type of like dispassion yeah. towards, you know, the people that they're going to become in a few years or maybe at that time. Right. Like sort of passionate young people who want to change the world. Why, why um, do you think um, why do you think writers are attracted to that? I think that there's like a objective like a false objectivity to it that they think is aspirational in a lot of ways right like they think that's how you're supposed to do it right if you can just remove yourself which you at the age of like 17 or 20 or whatever as a young writer you probably hate yourself you know and and like you you want more to be like an older adult who's like good right instead of a bad young writer and i think that there's part of it where you're just like oh well if i can just if I just like don't care about things, right? Like if I can just sort of blankly report things in this beautiful type of way, 
with these vague declarations and like that's that's actual like sort of like adult objectivity i don't know tammy what do you think you've also read a lot of john Deere. i think yeah i mean i think you were making this point a little bit in your piece that later on her politics get better i mean obviously famously around the central park five she was very right. much on point i th- find her writings in the 80s and 90s and 2000s like quite good and you know very perceptive about the american political style so i think maybe it's also looking at that later stuff that people are finding kind of like the leftist Joan Didion or thinking, okay, they can connect with her stylistically and then later on with her more politically, you know? Mm. Um, I feel like if I, like in response to Andy's question, I think, uh, you know, periodizing her like that, that the whole nostalgia around California and the idea of America and stuff like that, like that is not resonant anymore, you know? And I think um, there is a kind of like American exceptionalist quality in her, her work that I think, you know, at seem, I mean, it was blown apart back then as well, but you can't really credibly do that right now. Um, yeah. So to me, that would be, that would be very different. You know, I don't, I think like the, even the way, I mean, I like her writing on California, but there is a sort of, she's both at once critiquing, but also indulging in and engaging in that, that kind of like white Anglo version of California. Um so yeah, yeah like I think while I settlers. the settler part of it, yeah, and you know, and obviously she's she's making some fun and dissecting like the mythology constructed in her family around that identity. But at the same time, there's not a complete repudiation of that, you know. And so I think like um that that would be for me kind of what doesn't feel right or kind of timely about her right now. Yeah, right. It sounds like she was documenting sort of I mean it sounds like she was critical. Of the hippie movement, or do you think? Well, she hated oh, yeah. hippie. Okay. I mean, For sure. you know, that's very clear. Okay. Um, and like she said it basically, you know, that, and in retrospect, you know, she basically said, I used, like, in a way, saying, like, I really hated hippies, but now I sort of understand them a little better. <laughs> but, you know, the headline there is that she hated hippies. <laughs> yeah, she hated the hippies. She thought that, like, uh, the black radical movements were ridiculous, right. you know. Um, I mean, she was just a conservative, right? Like, I saw this this post. I'm not going to say who wrote it, but somebody was like, sort of talking about Joan Didion. This person is like, sort of part of the intellectual dark web, and they were talking about how like Joan Didion would scold the wokes, you know, if if she was still. Around. First of all, I was like, well, she was still alive, like as of yesterday. <laughs> I was going to say she did you know? evolve, and, with the and she was she was writing. You know, it wasn't like she like, you know, it wasn't like she died before all this happened, you know, like she certainly could have weighed in if she wanted to about this and she just didn't. Right. But um, and maybe that person is right. Like, you know, maybe Joan Didion, like most old people would find this sort of quote woke stuff to be ridiculous. But it was it's interesting because in my head, it like sort of segments like how people actually think about Didion. Right. Like because people only really identify her through those younger essays. And so then you're just like, okay, so why do you have, you know, it's almost like the politics don't quite matter. And I think that's in the end what it is. Mm. It's like um, people are willing to overlook what she's actually saying in those essays to try and indulge in like the style of them, Um, which I think is fine. In fact, I think it's healthy. You know, I think it's better than sort of like interrogating every single writer's like pure heart, you know, and like, (laughs) <laughs> what they actually believe um, and sort of trying to engage with the actual work itself. And um, I don't know the thing that people, the pieces and the pieces are too, to be fair to her, the pieces that I think people identify with the most, or at least like move them the most are stuff like 
goodbye to all that, right? Which uh, is her sort of goodbye to New York City, which okay, I think I've read is that not one. like a it's not like an excoriation of the hippies, you know. Um, it's just kind of like yeah, it's like nice. <laughs> I don't know. How else to I think that's the one I've read. <laughs> um, but like, what were her criticisms of the hippies? Because I think you could maybe she was right. <laughs> And well, maybe that's why she's aged well. <laughs> well, uh, look, I think it was less political and more right. aesthetic in a way, right. you know, and that was maybe the problem with it. I but I think cool. later on, the way she was able to see American vengeance or American, you know, right wing American politics was quite right. And and then, of course, the later books that really just deal with her personal mourning um, yeah. are, are really beautiful and kind of harrowing. So. I think like somebody, I mean, it's, you can't really compare Didion and Hooks, but like thinking of, as I was thinking about their passings, like Hooks being more of a kind of philosopher, I feel like she's aged very, her work has aged very well and feels right. very on point. And also because we've made very little progress around the ideas that she was talking about in some ways, yeah. Yeah. But like, you know, feminism being where it is now, um, you can read her and it feels in- incredibly fresh. I think, I mean, right. off the top that, that's true. I think that's very true. That's quite yeah. sad, but um, off the top of my head, I don't think she was at like very prestigious institutions in her career. So oftentimes it could be the case, like it's not till much later that. Who, Bell Hugs? Yeah. Did she, was yeah. she, at, yeah, I, I can't, she was, at, she hey, was right? at Yale and maybe no, Oberlin, <laughs> but then left and went and, you know, kind of defected. She, she wanted to teach at public places. Right. Um, yeah. She joined Berea College in Kentucky in 2004, where she founded okay. the Bell Hooks Institute. Yes. I don't know. I feel like she was always kind of seen as um, on the periphery of the margins of academia. And then eventually, by the 2000s, let's say, um, gained prominence and more acceptance. But I think mm. she, yeah, I think, because her works, I was looking, I didn't realize, like, her first works were written before she had finished her PhD, it wasn't like this monograph academic work or anything. It was just like circulated and probably generated word of mouth um, early on. So I think she always had this sort of marginal yeah. status. And it is often the case then that those academics or those writers um, are appreciated much later, right? Because her ideas mm-hmm. were seen as kind of outside the mainstream in the early 80s, right? Um, when she started. She. She also was somebody, though, who like was, you know, for a lot of people, I think, and I don't think this is necessarily fair to her, and I'm sure that a lot of people don't feel this way, but I think that for a lot of people, she's sort of also, like Didion, is also like a symbol, right? Yeah. Um, like, for sure. And is very distinctive in certain ways, right? Like, first of all, there's her identity, right? Um, and then there's also the fact that she didn't capitalize her name, right? Which I think, you know, <laughs> it's a really geni- genius move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It really was. I don't mean any of this to minimize her work, you know, because I find her work to be very impressive. I am just saying that, like, you know, there's a certain type of person for whom, like, Bell Hooks is more of like a, yeah, is more of like a figure and a and a series of quotes, right? Um, and now True, those series yeah. of quotes are like important, but um, I don't know, Tammy. Like, you know more about her than I do. You know, like, how how did she sort of ascend to that to that status where she is alongside Cornell West, I would say, in that generation of black intellectuals, right? Like as um as sort of the the top of uh of of who people sort of look to in of fame and of like notoriety. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think that's fair. I mean she was really interested in pedagogy as well. I think she wrote actually a book on education and so she, you know, always had 
I guess that that in mind that she was wanting to teach the next generation of activists and writers. And so I think like a lot of young women, especially even if they weren't literally her students, kind of like responded to that kind of instinct or that style in her work, you know, where it was speaking in a plain way. Um, And then, yeah, I mean, I think what you were saying kind of about her identity, that she was able to identify as black and, you know, queer and, you know, and and so she felt very avant-garde in that way, just like her identification. Um, I think also for maybe, you know, feminists who were disenchanted by the second wave or the younger ones who had read about second wave history and were disenchanted by that history could then look to someone like her as a sort of model of an integrated feminism, you know, that did look at dimensions of class and race. Um, so she seems like somebody who was, you know, she was also a poet, like she was operating across genres and therefore able to speak to a lot of different publics. Right. And and right. also like Cornell West, like d- did a lot of public speaking, you know, like she right. was always talking on panels and in public settings. Yeah. And, but she did not sort of have the same level of like sort of late, life success or not success, but late life prominence that Cornel West has had, huh? Like that seems maybe if she didn't seek it. I guess it, that's right? probably like, I think true. That she, like, I mean, who would have turned her down, you know, <laughs> to talk, especially like last year, you know, of course she would have talked whenever yeah. she had wanted to, but maybe she <laughs> it's hard to find someone who does more now. public stuff than Cornel West. Yeah. Though. Like, I think he's <laughs> He's quite a I've basically promoter for better or worse. <laughs> I've basically like memorized his Zoom room now. You know? <laughs> like he's always in this room with kind of shit. Like there's always like an empty bookshelf. Oh, really? Him. I can't That's like someone where... like like if it wasn't Cornell West, it would be concerning. You know, you'd be like, why is this person <laughs> in this totally empty room yelling about Chekhov? You know. <laughs> I don't know. I love Cornel West, but um, yeah, I mean, the only reason why I know that is because every time he has a YouTube video, I just watch it. Um, I'm like, oh yeah. Um, anyway, I um, yeah. Okay, Andy, like, what about what about uh, this China historian yeah. that you're talking about? Uh, well, I mean, one question I had was for you guys, and it's related to this, which is like, when did you all decide to like look into the the history of journalism or the journalists who came before you? In order, like, do you feel like all journalists do this, or do you feel like like this is something you have to do as part of your job is to like read who came before you and so on? Because you know, I'm gonna talk about like my guy is Jonathan Spence, this historian of China. Right. Uh, you know, this is like a professional thing. It's like to be a good historian, mm-hmm. I have to read the books that came before me, and you know, I. Right. And so it's less about like discovering this when I was 17, which I did, I was not reading Chinese history books when I was 17. You know, <laughs> um, I wasn't reading Tom Wolfe and. You know, it wasn't really like John Tom Wolf books or anything. Um, what were you reading at seventeen? No, actually, I did. I actually tried to read some Tom Wolf, but um, oh, it was like debate briefs. Yeah, it was a lot of debate briefs. I was just watching TV. Well, the other, I mean, the <laughs> other question, Judith, Judith Butler. Yeah, Judith Butler. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the other. <laughs> Well, the other question is, I think, <laughs> like literally, Judith Butler and Foucault, like Chomsky right? if, you're, yeah. if you're like a K debater, yeah. Um, no, but that's, Judith I mean, that's, Butler, in the, in the, Judith Butler might be the last of those, huh? Like the last of that generation from um, debate. Uh, that was in your debate briefs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, in our debate briefs. No, actually, all the CRT authors are still alive. Well, we're talking about like yeah, academic superstars in the '90s, is Butler and Zizek. Right, right, right. That's yeah, what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Zizek that are sort of like yeah. cool. That are cool and associated with like specific types of identity, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? like and and also a particular writing style. Yeah, let's say right, right? like Judith Butler, Chomsky is still alive. Um, yes, but, right. He's more eighties, I would say. Right, and then yeah. Um, 
And then but, Judith Butler, Bell Hawks. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the other kind of related question is I think when I was, I was thinking about this when I was a teenager, I think subconsciously or consciously, I was trying my best not to read white Americans, which you could say is like mm-hmm. not, that has its own downsides. Like in a lot of ways, I don't know a lot of stuff I should know. I like, but like I went through my face. You haven't read Tessa the Durbervilles? <laughs> That's not even American. I think I actually tried <laughs> to read that, but uh, uh, I couldn't get it's through. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's like a lot of red scars flying around in that book, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Yeah, I was, this I was, was when you were a teenager, Andy. Yeah, I was like reading. Trying... I was just trying my best okay. not to read white people, you know, for whatever reason gotcha. when you're a teenager. Uh-huh. What was the reasoning? I don't know, but I was like. And I just like, I was I'm reading like Murakami and like you know, I was trying to read like intellectual oh, yeah. global authors or whatever. It might have been like a '90s globalization kid thing, but um, it didn't occur to me in my teens to like read, you know, the classic American journalists. And then later on, I discovered like some stuff that I should have been reading probably, you know, in my 20s and 30s. But it was like my teenager well, thing was to like read stuff that wasn't from the U.S. because I was like, you know a teenager and like unhappy <laughs> and mopey I did a lot of that too, <laughs> actually now that i think about it it was like very you know i was very bored with uh early american literature and so i i think through that you'd kind of seek out non-white authors yeah in a way like i really read you know i read like uh midnight's children for example right. that was very meaningful to me and um by salman rushdie and um but yeah, I don't know to answer your question. I don't know about you, Tammy, but I don't I don't think that there is that many people. But now that it just depends on what your assignment is, you know, what your particular job is. And it's not that different than you as a historian reading it professionally, right? Yeah. Now that I'm like kind of a columnist, or at least my job is functionally a columnist, but also like a newsletter writer. Yeah, I spent two months reading all the newsletters that were popular, you know across the ideological spectrum, whether like Slate Star Codex or, you know, Matty Glacius is slow boring or um, even old columnists, you know, Peggy Noonan at the Wall Street Journal. Um, I seem to have only read conservatives <laughs> and centrists. Yeah. Like, across I, the ideological spectrum. Yeah. <laughs> the ideological spectrum of Peggy Noonan to Slate Star Codex. <laughs> <laughs> libertarian to Silicon Valley libertarian. Like it was like, oh, and then uh, um, this explains I, a lot. Eh? <laughs> yeah, exactly. People on Twitter over the last day have been so mad at me, and all of them are calling me a libertarian. It's crazy. I don't think I've been yelled at this much since I made fun of the of, the, of Major League Soccer. <laughs> <laughs> but I refuse to delete the tweets because I'm right. It's okay. Um, yeah, and so you just read stuff, you know. You know, Joan Didion, I think, was more of like a high school type of thing. But I wasn't really thinking about becoming a journalist back then. I wanted to be a novelist, right? So I read more novels. But yeah, once you're older, you just sort of read things professionally to try and figure out what people are doing. Um, You know, like, I don't know. I'll give an example. Like, so Slate Star Codex has terrible politics, right? Um, Who is this? I am. I've never read it. Scott Alexander. Okay. Right. Um, There is all this sort of stuff around him being like a race realist and it seems like he is a race realist you know and but like not in like sort of in a soft way not to excuse it at all right but what is a race realist race is real oh like like fucking 
caliper fucking science bullshit yeah um and like i don't agree with scott alexander about a lot but stylistically for example right the reason why he's very popular amongst that group of people is because he is very thorough right and so if you can read him with while disagreeing with his political ideas in an instructive way to try and figure out how can you be as thorough as him right um, and like, how do you put in a lot of studies? How do you put in a lot of like data? How do you put in a lot of sort of empirical knowledge to better make your case? Right. I don't know. I think all journalists do stuff like that. Right. Like you, I don't know. I always think that my own stuff is like a work in progress and I can't yeah. actually identify what the thing is I do. <laughs> and part of the reason why I switched to this job was because I was very clearly, starting to identify the thing that I do, you know, it's like, I don't know. I kind of write these long magazine stories every nine months that are mostly about me, but also about Asians, you know, <laughs> and uh, they're all kind of written the same style and people seem to like them. And then I was like, I hate this, you know, like I'm so bored with it. And then you just move on to the next thing, but to prepare for the next thing. Yeah. You have to read a lot. Yeah. I don't know. Tammy, do you do all that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I guess to, to your narrow question though, Andy, I don't think I really studied the history of journalism or whatever, really to like the tw- my twenties. Cause I hadn't gone to J school and wasn't, you know, I was on a different path, like lawyering and stuff. And so I was, wait, you went to J school. No, I didn't go to J school. Oh, okay. So like, you know, I went to law school and I was yeah. lawyering. And so I don't, and I wasn't a young reader. Like I was kind of a, just trying to get by, watch a lot of TV, mess around a lot. And um, so I think I came to a lot of reading quite late. And I regret that a little bit actually, but I think, um, yeah, the learning of like the history of journals. I feel like you're just like, once you're in industry spaces, you hear a lot about, oh, these are the great pieces, you know, and then you try to educate yourself and do like J school informally. Yeah. So there was a, like a lot of like autodidacticism in me. Yeah. Um, I was curious to ask you about the influence of Spence because I've always heard him described as the Chinese historian who made like Asian public history or even really like foreign, like yeah. global public history, a thing, yeah. you know, accessible and, and popular. And I'm wondering if, if that was true for you. And if you think that you see his influences in your work. Um, it seems like it based on the obituary that he made this big impact, but I didn't really encounter him until the thing that is John, that we hear Jonathan Spencer's he wrote the textbook that is assigned in all Chinese history classes, including my own, including the one I took the search for modern China, search for modern China, which he wrote in 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I had, so I think he had this prior life as this, the guy, you know, he's this British man who studied China. He was at Yale and he brought China to the general public. He wrote not just mm-hmm. kind of obscure, narrow academic monographs, but he wrote like yeah. stories. And he like was part of this group of people who I guess were really into narrative history instead of talking about like, you know, stupid dates and events. They just kind of tell stories um, in a way, which is a little controversial. People would say like, how do you know? The emperor, Kangxi emperor, actually said this in 1650. There's no evidence he said this, but he's like, well, I'm taking liberties, right? Um, and so he wrote these books that um, were famous, I think, because they might be like the first and only Chinese history book that your sort of like average American might mm-hmm. read at Borders or Barnes and whatever was in the 80s, right? Um, and so I think that was his background. That's how he became famous. And then I think for basically, you know, I'm 38. Anyone like my age and younger kind of knows him just as the textbook guy. Um, but I okay. think he really kind of symbolizes, or maybe as the bridge 
you know, either the end of or the bridge between different generations, which is to say, like learning the history of my field, which is something I only learned, you know, after I started doing it is at least in the outside of China, right? The field is very much um, ex-military white guys, basically, in the U.S. and Britain. Um, and I think Spence was in World War II. Like, that's how he got involved in Asia. Um, who became, like, the the intermediary between Asia and the rest of the world and would, you know, become the head of, head, head of their studies in Harvard and Yale and Chicago and so on. Mm-hmm. Like, so so yeah when 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 i just started studying the stuff in the 2000s i think a lot of those names were around and like what were like gradually like you know retiring and you know disappearing and he's kind of like the last one um one thing that was interesting is you know i i only, i never met him formally i was in the room with him twice i think i saw him talk once and he saw me talk once um and i saw him talk in taiwan 10 years ago and the first thing he said was, and I think he's like very open about this. He said, I'm not going to speak in Chinese because I don't know how to speak in Chinese. Um, because when I studied Chinese history in the 50s, you didn't have to learn how to speak Chinese. Um, because in the 50s, China was like this rumor, you know, no one had ever been there. Nobody knew right. what it was like. It was like yeah. studying Sanskrit. You know, you study to read it. You don't study you to study pronounce literary it. Chinese. And, yeah. yeah, exactly. You study for the meaning. I have no like question he was a good historian he was good at all this stuff but it, and he was like very aware like you know this is impossible now if anyone studies china today like you obviously have to learn how to speak chinese mandarin um so that was just like one thing that kind of stuck out to me like these generations these things happen really quickly yeah. um and uh i know we're old <laughs> well he, that's the other yeah. answer <laughs> he was old yeah because I you guess started now your scholarship in the post like all of the regional studies stuff was construct were constructed essentially as like Cold War projects. Exactly. Setting you know, and then you were coming in after the Cold War. Well, yeah, <laughs> well, well theoretically. So China ended, right? China opens up, quote unquote, in the eighties. So basically anyone who started studying yeah. in the eighties and afterwards should have learned how to speak Mandarin, although that's not always mm-hmm. the case. Yeah. Um but yeah, now it'd be unfathomable, I think, for a grad student, much less some um, superstar to like go to China and not be able to speak Mandarin. Um, yeah which is like a small thing but it was it does also kind of like reflect about like the politics of the field at the time which is mm-hmm. china's this like dead country this closed communist country we don't actually have to like learn to interact with the real living people there um hmm. yeah. and he never really wrote about the 20th century because i think at the time when he started 20th century was political science so all of his books are about like 17 1800s china and uh but the modern china the modern china book is in the 20th century right no it's about the qing which is the 17th to 20th century. oh i thought it came up it, into it does go into the 20th century yeah and i kind of think that stuff was co-authored there's many editions at this point <laughs> you're very skeptical okay. yeah. no i mean you know it's just students who like work with indirect gotcha. chapters um but that's the other thing that's kind of changing it's like well what is history anymore like the 20th century is obviously history we're in 2021 like who's going to study the 1960s like not political scientists, right? It's going to be historians. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's true. Stuff is changing. Yeah. But um, I don't know. I th- I, the other question I was thinking, you know, Tammy, you had kind of asked this earlier, was like, are there is there an equivalent to these guys now? And I kind of think, you know, we've talked about this before. The walls between academia and non-academia are so porous now. Like maybe just on Twitter. That <laughs> we all spend too much time yeah. on social media. You don't. It'd but. be really hard for one person to occupy like the the voice of China, or the voice of the Middle East, or the voice of 
any particular part of the world, which I think is a good thing, probably, you know, that you actually have like debates about this or that part of the world. And, um, you know, your average person on a computer in, I don't know, Texas, you know, could interact with or could could see the thoughts of an academic um, without Mm -hmm. without being in a university setting. Um, So I think I think his popularity and his fame kind of was reflecting a different era where there was just like a lot less. A, Asia was like seen as much further away. And B, there was just like a lot, a greater sort of gap or separation between um, academia, I guess, and the rest of the world. Right. Um, and I think that's been kind of broken down. You know, probably yeah. not not for good. Not, not, not necessarily a good thing for academics. It probably just means our institutions are collapsing. <laughs> and, and we have to like reach out to like the world beyond academia to, for for. Uh, Dirty journalists. <laughs> now you're in the muck with us. And you got to dance on Welcome. Twitter. We're just tweeting, like yeah. tweeting stupid threads about, you know, stuff. That's okay. Twitter stories. <laughs> you know, you could use, don't, your ivory tower can include some tweets, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, should we talk about don't look up? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Don't look up. The movie. It's a movie. Came, came out. <laughs> it came out. I think it came out on Christmas. A lot of people had opinions about it. You know, in fact, I would say that more people had opinions about this movie than any movie that I can remember in the last year. Is that right? Oh, I think maybe just was that on mostly on Twitter or I don't. I think it was mostly because people are home and they didn't have anything to yeah. do. Yeah, we. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. was the number one movie on Netflix. I think for a while. Yeah. Right. So for those who haven't, I don't know. I don't care if we ruin this movie yeah, or spoil, spoil this movie. But like, you know, if you if you don't want this movie spoiled, you don't have to listen to the rest of this podcast. It's okay. You know, just just sign up for the show <laughs> at goodbye.substack.com and send us $5 a month and you can listen to all the shows. And then once you watch, <laughs> don't say goodbye. What is it? Oh, don't, don't, don't say goodbye. <laughs> don't look up. You can come back and listening to the show on our archive of episodes. All right. So the basic premise here is that like uh, Jennifer Lawrence is like an astronomy PhD and she's looking in this telescope while wrapping Wu-Tang. And then there's like this, she notices this giant comet and then Leonardo DiCaprio is her professor. And then he's like, oh man, this comet is coming straight towards Earth, Right. And then they have to like warn the public. There's this like president who I don't know, maybe it's like kind of like, you know, Marjorie, not really quite Marjorie Taylor Greene, but really like <laughs> a Trumpian figure, right? Yeah. Um, and she's, Jonah Hill is her chief of staff and son. Meryl Streep is the president. <laughs> Meryl Streep's the president. And like the, the movie is basically about these people trying to get people to listen to the existential, to the ex- extinction level uh, threat that this comet evades. And then like basically, the government, U.S. government decides because a tech company that's uh, some sort of a conglomerate, you know, some sort of like amalgam of Google and Apple and Tesla and all these companies says, oh, but the but the uh, comet is going to have a lot of um, rare earth metals. Ra- rare earth metals. And so <laughs> instead of deflecting it with a nuclear bomb, we should blow it up and then harvest the little bomb, the little meteorites, Comets. right? And then we can... Uh, there will be no more like poverty in the world, right? Like it's sort of tech. That's a movie. And then things go horribly wrong and uh, everyone dies at the end. 
Sorry for the spoiler. No. <laughs> All right. So what do we think about this movie? Because I, th- I think that I'm ready to discuss it. Yeah. Right. And so like we re- wrote a lot. The first question I want to ask is that like, I don't know, like what, what do you think about movies like this that are like sort of message movies? Right. Like because a lot of the conversation is about right. like, you know, someone needed to say it like we need. And I think that part of what Adam McKay and David Sirota, who like, you know, interestingly enough, is one of the writers for this. Yeah. Right. The story yeah. is by David Sirota. Um, for those who don't know, David Sirota like worked for the Bernie campaign and is sort of like a. I don't know, very well known um, and longstanding uh, journalist on the left who like is a bit of a provocateur, I would say. Like, that's a fair way to like, I think that's even, um, I don't think that's in any way uh, unkind to David, right? Like he is sort of like the, he's like a thorny guy who like uh, has existed on the left for a while. And so um, you can sense the type of frustration in this movie that's like, Everyone needs to wake the fuck up. How are we going to get people to wake the fuck up? <laughs> Let's make a movie about a comet hitting the earth as a very clear and obvious metaphor for climate change, you know, <laughs> and everyone needs to wake the fuck up. Right. Like, say, so, I don't know. Did you think it was effective in that sort of way? Like, I think that's the purpose. Of yeah. It, right. Now, tell me what do you think? I liked it a lot more than I expected I would. I avoided it for a while because I didn't, you know, I thought it was just too buzzy and it was worried about the celebrity casting. But <laughs> I actually thought it was really funny. And to me, it had a kind of, you know, obviously Adam McKay, like big short type kind of comic frenetic energy, but also good VP sort of yeah. moments. Um, right. And I really like, I'm a fan of Veep. So I, I don't know. I mean, sure, it's vulgar and in your face and it's a message movie and we can debate all sorts of kind of like aesthetic dimensions of it. But I thought like it was a generally good experiment. I don't actually know if it like actually did the messaging part. Or I, yeah. I just wonder if people who haven't really thought about the existential crisis we're in like suddenly do feel moved by it. Right. But um, yeah, I would say like for what it was trying to do, it is successful. And I don't have any big problem with it. And I was maybe a bit surprised about some of the furor on Twitter over it. What was the furor? I miss a lot. Of I that. don't know. I mean, I I just saw people, a lot of people tweeting snarkily about like, oh, if only like Leo and Jennifer would scream in real life or like, you know, this sort of thing about like, <laughs> oh, it's on. all contained in a movie. Yeah. And so who cares? You know, and, and it, but it's also a movie. So yeah, also, I guess that was my reaction. They scream in real life, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. that mean. too. And then I think there was a funny side conversation. So lame to me. Um, Well, that's yeah, and I think like here on this show, we're not big fans of that. That was of what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Of Of the celebrities can save us thing anyway. You know that was yeah, that was Um, the most exhausting part for me. It just felt like very transparent. I don't know about you at this point, but whenever I see Leonardo DiCaprio in a movie, I just feel like this is Leonardo DiCaprio talking right now. Like this, this is it. not the Wolf of Wall Street or whatever. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, like yeah, it was a weird casting for him because you know he was like kind of like the schlub, yeah. You know, and his heart it was almost it was kind of and then but then he was like the hot schlub. I, you know? I, I thought like, that storyline was so funny. Yeah, that was funny. Oh, okay. I was cracking up at that. The I had a hard time scientist. buying it. Right? I was like, you're like, under the cap for you. What are you doing in a schlub. science laboratory? <laughs> You know, there's like writing well, equations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Just because like you pretend I you can't speak doesn't mean you're an academic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah well i don't know it's like there are two things that i would took away from this the first is like sort of like okay um you know adam mckay i think is very is 
is the most powerful person in Hollywood, perhaps. Right? I know it's like, kind of crazy. This how movie that happened, is a right? huge movie. Like uh, he is also the executive producer for Succession, yeah. which is like the most talked about television oh, show. Okay, right, yeah, <laughs> which so I haven't seen, but yeah, he does everything. I know? mean, was, was okay. that because of the Big Short? Like, what made him go from Will Ferrell's writing partner to like owning Hollywood? Um, I don't know. I think it was the big mm-hmm. short. I think it was uh, the movie about Dick Cheney, right? Okay. Oh, yeah, right. Um, like it was sort of like a type of if you want a movie that has some sort of like political gravitas to it, then like this is the guy because he can make them also entertaining and funny, right? Yeah. Like as opposed to like sort of like pedantic yeah. and like hit you over the head and and like this sort of like you know, like melodramatic Oscar bait thing that you know stars like the guy from the King's Speech. Uh, not, <laughs> you know, I'm just making up a movie in my head. You know, um, but also like, well, yeah, I don't know. Like, movie. <laughs> well, like, because I think that that era is over. Like, I think it ended kind of with the green book of like, you know, yeah. gigantic yeah. films that are like really melodramatic and and like kind of like uh, Shawshank Redemption or mm-hmm. Cinderella Man or Million Dollar Baby or Crash or like all, you know, like these movies Crash. that are made to win Oscars that are like just awful. Yeah. Like the worst, the, the worst genre of movies, like the big budget. <laughs> um like big star, you know, we're going to win them an Oscar and we're going to win an Oscar too. Like, I can't even remember the, what, what's like the, the green book was like the last one, maybe that like sort of was like a big message movie. Like, you know, like mm-hmm. I think the public has sort of identified all these movies as corny at yeah. this point. Right. And doesn't really have the patience because their brains have been shorted out by just watching Marvel superhero movies so much. Right. <laughs> so Adam McKay is like the type of person, if you want to make like a serious movie, like he's the one that can deliver it. That's my sense of it. I have no idea, but like, that would be my guess. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like there but, was a profile of him like two or three years ago where he was like, I'm a socialist and he just made him seem like he is. Well, that's what I wanted to ask. Right? Yeah. Right. Right. So he is like a socialist, you know, like he goes on Chapo, for example. Right. Like, and so, yeah. So he has like, a real understanding, I think. And look, and David Sirota was his was yeah. like the writer right. of this movie. Right, right, right. <laughs> you know, like if you need any more yeah. evidence. And so I don't know. I, I'm interested in what you guys think about it because like I think, you know, like what does it mean to have like the most powerful person in Hollywood be like a socialist, you know, and to make movies David Sirota? You know, yeah. like is it a good way to advocate like the policies of the left? And like was this, do you think I saw a lot of debate amongst like sort of leftist academic uh, people like about was this movie leftist or not and I was like sitting there and it's like well I also had these thoughts but like you know like I can't actually type out my thoughts because <laughs> well what like, were uh, their arguments on either side they said the second half of the movie was like more leftist than the first half and I was like trying to figure out what they meant and I was like I'm too stupid to no understand I'm like too stupid and ignorant to know because of means. the collective action that's portrayed and I have no clue. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, well, anyway, that's too granular. But I, <laughs> right. So my broad question, that. answer that one first. Yeah. Like, like you know, like it, like th- is it meaningful to have this guy around? You know, like and and like, do you think that this this film actually like a- achieves something in terms of like the left? Um, I have a very cynical take on it, which is like, I think it's not great that. Uh, it seems to embody the sort of stereotype of Hollywood left that they're all very rich. And for them being left is just like a set of opinions they can have as they continue to like rake in money and benefit from celebrity culture and so on. And, you know, if Leonardo DiCaprio was paid as much as like the 30th actor on the call sheet, that'd be great. 
and maybe I would say like this is a leftist movie, but <laughs> the the structure, I mean, if, but the whole structure of the movie is like we're getting the Leonardo sees the means of production. Yeah, exactly. yeah Andy's like unless we burn down Hollywood, yeah. this no, isn't really like, leftism. <laughs> this is like like I don't know I don't know what kind of leftism this is like. The richest, most famous people in Hollywood are all getting together to shame everyone else for. Right. not agreeing with them on like i kind of like what tammy was saying like, i don't know who on who was on the fence about climate change and watch this movie and i was like oh my god <laughs> now i see the light don't look up it showed right. me i should take climate change more seriously you know but like, maybe it seeps in you know what about the critique of like tech you know because obviously a lot of I was like is tech the problem with climate change isn't it fossil fuels like what do we like why is it just like low-hanging fruit to make fun of tesla and well, yeah, Steve it might Jobs. be, but it also could be, and I also like kind of making it. fun of like autistic people in a lot of ways, right? Like that. You think so? Yeah. Role. But oh yeah, yeah, but like I think, um, I you know the like there is like a question of whether any sort of intervention that the government wants to make is going to be you know actually circumvented and then sure uh, converted into something by like some large corporation tech company that wants to yeah. make more money and has like a totally nihilistic view of of humanity um i mean you could say like tesla actually represents like one of the few industries that's trying to deal with climate change um but also you know make money in a totally capitalistic way right i don't think that guy was supposed to be elon musk though i think he was like closer to like mark zuck but you know i think it's a combination he's like an amount yeah to me he had some musk what about that idea like the idea that like you know here's a movie that actually clearly lays out what will most likely happen in an extinction level event which is that like you know, like we won't be able to actually put aside the interests of capital for yeah. uh, to save humanity. That actually, we would rather destroy everybody, you know, than 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 yeah. risk yeah. capital for the wealthiest. Like, is that that seems like a pretty left idea that is clearly transmitted in this film, right? Yeah, the case that I found that helpful. Yeah, the case Nathan Robinson made in Current Affairs was that unlike a film that makes that's just like sneering at every normal person as being stupid. It's really about how the normal people in the film actually are very alarmed. Yeah. And the, and, like and, and the rescue mission or whatever gets hijacked by the powerful right. elites and so on. That's yeah. fair. You know, that's something. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Those, you know, those portrayals of like Twitter and YouTube. I feel like, yeah. I don't know. Every time like TV tries to, no one's been able to do it. Yeah. Portray there are two like, things that television has not figured out. The first is two people texting with one another. How do we represent that? You know? <laughs> every, every, everything has been tried from, you know, like, you know, putting like little bubbles and, like this, mm-hmm. you know, on the side of the screen, you know, the whole screen. And you see the person like walk around and texting and the bubbles come out really big on the side of the screen, like over their like couch or some <laughs> shit, you know, it's like superimposed over the whole right. image. Um, or then like extreme close-ups of the actual text that mm-hmm. I, because I am basically blind, can't read, you know, and I have to ask my wife, she's like, what does that say? And she's like, oh my God, I can't watch television with you, you know? Uh, but nobody has figured it out. Now, I had an idea, you know, after watching this movie. <laughs> which is that you could download an app and then they would text the actual text to you. No, that's so terrible. Why is that a bad idea? That's a good idea. You don't want to have double screening required to watch it. Sounds like 3D glasses. It's like way too involved. 
you know, from from the audience. Don't do it, Jay. First of all, 3D movies are pretty cool. And secondly, I would say, like, if you're like, this is one of the things that I think would be kind of cool in the metaverse or whatever, right? (laughs) Like, is you're watching a movie in the metaverse and instead of like having to see some bullshit representation of like a tweet, you know? You can actually just like read a time. It'll like show up on your timeline as if you're immersed in the movie and in the world of the movie or you get text messages to your metaphone. I don't know. I feel like it would still be corny because it's obviously. Uh, uh, I'm really giving away some great ideas. I don't have a you know how much, the you know how much on the right better these the ideas are than the ideas that are actually yeah. like animating the metaverse and making people rich right now. You know, those ideas are much worse. This is a much better idea. Like, you know, like the, and the tweets to, and like <laughs> sending the text to your phone instead of you having to read the screen. That's a great idea. I think, you know, it's like, uh, you know how you like, uh, when you're younger and you smoke weed and you would line up the wizard of Oz with pink Floyd's the dark side <laughs> of the moon, you know, when you, do you just do that. It's when like right when the movie starts, you hit your app, you know, you hit play on your app and then as it keeps track of the movie. Uh, yeah. And so like at one fourteen or something, they're like, Oh yeah. So, you know, you know, Jennifer Lawrence, uh, text Meryl Streep or whatever it is. Right. And then instead of having to read the little representation of it, it pops up on your phone and then you can read it on your phone. Good idea. We all agree. I think it'd be very I think it should just be audio. For a text? Like your phone just talks to you? No, not my phone. But like, so I was watching a romantic comedy the other day and like these two characters, like one of them grabs the woman's phone where uh, she's receiving texts and she reads them to her friend. And it was incredibly naturalistic. I liked that. Or like when they have the voiceover thing reading it out to you yeah. i think that's better than right the zoom in or whatever i feel like you could awesome. act that out in an authentic way i think yeah with a lot of the social media stuff it's just really hard mm. to capture the earnestness and clumsiness and sort of authenticity of social media yeah. and and like youtube whatever like vloggers <laughs> or whatever they're called because when you're acting out a, a youtube influencer it just feels like so <laughs> Like corny and cringy, and like this isn't how it works. And um, you but in this movie, like... didn't you feel some of the panic of the Trump era opening your Twitter? I mean, I do actually think, sure, yeah. it was maybe clumsy and like, but that kind of like, you know, the sort of layered collage to like yeah. panic feeling, I I thought actually came across fairly well in this movie. And you know, as media critique goes, I don't think it was that far off. Yeah, that's the thing. I, I think you know, probably because of David Sroda's personal access experience they probably had a lot of good insight into how all this stuff works i don't know it just kind of felt like why did they have to cast ever like the most well-paid actors in hollywood to pat each other on the back to do this you know i don't i thought it 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 added to the movie for me because they're all like it's i don't know i enjoy watching big stars you know (laughs) in movies even though i don't really watch movies you know but when i do it's generally something like this where it's like um, you know, I'm not gonna watch um right. a bunch of B list character actor. You know, talk about their marriages. A method actor. Um but the I don't know. The other thought I had about this was I, well, I don't know. I think that in that way it is effective. And I think honestly, if we if, if we didn't have our specific politics, right, that we would maybe find the idea more novel. But then I wonder if we actually would. Like how much I was just reading something today is like 76% of people hate Facebook, right? In America, like they don't trust Facebook. They think Facebook's bad for society. And so then you actually think, okay, well, how novel is this thought really, right? Like how, like people are actually quite primed to think of, you know, social media giants and like tech giants as being like completely malevolent actors that will only act in self-interest, even though they're destroying the world. 
Right. But the problem is like, we can't do anything about it. Like they're still going to use all the apps and we're all still going to use all the apps and stuff like that. Right. And I think that movie probably communicated that pretty well. Right. Like nobody, which is what like that we can't do anything. about. Well, climate change? Like, we're just like in the thrall of like yeah. uh, big tech. Yeah. I mean, one of the things um, another commentary said that I think is probably true is like, does the film leave you hopeful or hopeless? Because I think a fair critique is that it kind of leaves you feeling hopeless. Like, we just can't do anything about it um, because all the, all the whatever bad actors are lined up and, you know, without any sort of democratic input, they're just going to make these decisions for us. It's like, yeah, you know. Right. We're never going to do the nuclear option. (laughs) Yeah. Like we're never going to actually like harm capital to deal with climate change. Well, we're going to try and like do little captures of it that maximize profits, right? Like that's, yeah, that stuff seems kind of true too. And I also just I feel know. like, you know, again, that Steve Jobs, Elon Musk character, that's, that's just like such an, such an easy target, you know, it's like, but that, those are not the evil people. I mean, they are evil, right? But those are not the ones. No, they're been, pretty evil. But they're not the ones who've been stopping like I renewable energy. I have no problem with that like character. Years, you know? I didn't have any problem with that character either, or the evilness of the tech. But as long as it's not, it's not a system. Life. It's just like one crazy guy. You know what I'm saying? I, I guess when he brought in, right. but it is a system. I mean, I, yeah, I, I, you don't think that comes across? I was thinking about those. You know how he bring, he talks about they make all these Michigan State jokes, and then they talk yeah. about Stanford and Harvard. And I was right. like. Uh, I don't know how I feel about this. It's like academics can make these jokes about ourselves, but when Hollywood people are making fun of us, I don't know how I feel about it. Uh, <laughs> I think the oh yeah, the Michigan State joke was pretty funny. No, but I, I thought that, that was all good because there there was that whole thing where Jonah Hill says, you know, there's the working class, the cool rich, and right. the rest of them, or right. whatever, you know. Yeah. And so it's plugging into this whole thing about like, yeah, Trump went to Wharton or whatever, and there's all these fascists who went to ivy league schools but you know they're all garbage humans and they don't care if we die you know so i thought there were these these sly little things that were quite funny and 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 sharp around the you know the capture of power the mechanisms by which all of these influences work yeah i don't know i just i don't know but what's an alter i I guess my answer question to people who criticize the movie right is like, what is an alternative way to tell a climate change apocalypse story, right? Did you ever watch that movie, The Day After Tomorrow? No. No, that's like, I, I don't even remember what happens, but basically it's like, you know, the world's ending. <laughs> like some hurricane, is ha- some weather event has happened and everything is like fucked up. It's not up, an atomic right? weapon blowing up the world? No, no. It's like some sort of weather event, I think. Um, I could be wrong. Maybe it is an asteroid hitting the earth in that one too. <laughs> anyway, you know, like... Um, cause I saw some people saying like, oh, well, why didn't they make, why did they make it a metaphor? You right. know, like, why does it have to be the comment? Why didn't they just make an apocalypse movie about actual climate change? And you could do something like take like the David Wallace Wells essay or David Wallace Wells's book, you know, which is pretty apocalyptic. And you could like, sort of like make it all happen in a day, for example, right? Like all the things, all mm-hmm. the effects and that you could do that. And you have like a global reach to it right like you have someone in like cure a or something like that and like it's finally flooded or something you know i don't know and like you could have it almost be like a i don't know like a steven soderbergh type of movie where you have like you know sort of this montage type of effect isn't that like the al gore um, documentary he made 
Yeah, yeah but that's say. what I mean. In the end, I was like, that <laughs> movie would be pretty, I think it would be so boring yeah. and on the head, yeah. you know, like it would be like reading an article about climate change. I mean, the two big 08 crisis movies are The Big Short and the other one is Inside Job. Um, right. which is this, you know, this Oscar winning documentary with Matt Damon talking, but it's just like right, a bunch right, of right. academics talking about finance. Right. I think inside job is a much better film, but obviously big short is the one that, you know, you know, he's giving credit for like bringing it to the masses and telling the story in an accessible way. But I find it like a really obnoxious, like music video kind of movie, you know? So maybe in like sense, my sensibilities are, are the wrong sensibilities <laughs> for, for selling movies. Uh, and that one has all these random celebrities. Yeah, it has like Selena. Right? Like I, I just know the scene because I've talked. Selena it, Gomez. Ten, yeah, Selena right. Gomez comes in to talk right. about derivatives, and it's like, why? Why do you need Selena right. Gomez in this scene? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe my I don't know. I, animosity. Yeah, I felt very torn about those one. Those little like interstitial things that were. They're almost like like you know Family Guy type of like you know, yeah. breaks. Yeah. You know? And then it's like, oh, here's Selena Gomez, and I'm like. Oh wow, Selena Gomez. That was my thought. First thought, you know, oh Selena Gomez. And then my second thought was like, why? Yeah. Like, and then I didn't pay attention to like it was just like <laughs> look at me, I have so many friends in Hollywood, you know. That's that's the vibe I get. Uh yeah, I don't know. I, I think uh maybe there's like I think that there's an artistic argument to be made that like it's interesting to put those people in those types of spaces, right? And that it maybe like there's like a satirical thing that the actor is also in on where it's just like, oh, you know, I represent the opposite of this. And yet here I am. Right. Type of thing. Right. But I don't know. Like, that's that's pretty that's like a t- kind of generosity that I think I would extend if I was wanting to write like a very positive review of the movie. Right. But and I think that there's pro- that if you talk to Sirota or Adam McKay, they would say that, yeah. you know. But like, does that actually mean anything to the watching of the of the movie? I don't know. It does make it more entertaining, right? And I think that that's probably more important than like whatever like sort of implicit mm-hmm. meaning yeah. that it has towards it. Um, but I don't know. Okay, last question about this, and then we should go. But or we don't have to go. But you know, um, if you guys have any thoughts, I have a last thought about it. Okay, so this is Andy. Do you want to read this? This is you know, you pulled this out. It's from Money on the Left. Uh, like, uh, do you have it in front of you? Yeah, let me scroll. My computer's slow. Okay. Okay, because I thought this is a very interesting the whole thing? point. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Or like whatever parts you think are interesting. Yeah. So Don't Look Up's initial setup induces an immediate suspicion of media in the audience since the bureaucracy is reflexively against scientific facts that would disrupt neoliberalism's automatic churning. The plot unfolds from this negative institutional premise, flattening media to the propaganda model proposed in Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky's Manufacturing Consent. On this model, the dominant mass media system consists of financialized corporate conglomerates driven by advertising revenue and stock value appreciation. Because media is presented as totally enclosed by capital, the theory of change is narrowed to a binary choice, lean in or drop out. Let's talk about the first one. (laughs) The first one is about the media. Um, and the media portrayal. So like in the film, the media portrayal is mostly through television, right? And it's like, I don't know, who are the actors in it? It's like, uh, one of them is Tyler Perry. Oh yeah, and Kate Blanchett. And Kate Blanchett. And they're both very funny, yeah. right? Like in some ways they're- They're really of, great. Yeah. They're like sort of the stars of the movie. And, <laughs> and, at least to me. Like they were the only ones where I was like, this is great and they're really funny. Uh-huh. And like, they're sort of getting the satire of the film in this way that I don't think even like Jonah Hill did, right? Like Jonah Hill was just sort of doing a Jonah Hill character, right? Like it was, he was just being Jonah Hill, right? And then Meryl Streep was like, I don't know. It's like fine, you know, like I think she was fine. But Kate Blanchett and 
Tyler Perry were like demonic in this way that was. It like, was amazing. It was like really good. I think that was the best yeah. part of the movie. Yeah, and so they they play, they're playing sort of like. They're playing basically Morning Joe, yeah, I would absolutely. say, right? Oh, yeah. Like, I think 100%. Be, yeah, they're supposed to be like Morning Joe and like where they're like kind of political, but not really, you know, mm-hmm. and they like are, uh, you know, but they're also like total sociopaths, right? And that it has this like view of the media in terms of, and then also like even like the newspaper people are like driven by like right. engagement, right? right? Like so after yeah. like she takes it to like the New York Herald, which I don't know, I imagine it's supposed to be the Times, right? Like for sure. Like they go into like a room and the editors, like the engagement on this story right. is not very high, et, yeah. cetera, et cetera. I don't know if like I worked I have no idea if that happens or not. I imagine that it doesn't as much as like it, you know, as much as it's being satirized to do. Yeah. Um but I there was a both sidesism too that came up later at the Herald meetings, right? Where they're right. like, "You told us it was this scientific view, but we found scientists who say it's not a comet, right? right you know, right, right, which right. you know, I think is maybe there's something to that." Yeah, right. So you felt that that was um, incisive. I thought their vi- their version of the media is in terms of like being like a like you know what is obviously to them a satirical, right? You know, amplification of what the, how the media functions. Yeah, I thought it was pretty accurate. You know. Like television hosted media, like uh, that type of like talk show type of format, it's like sociopathic, right? Like, <laughs> I agree. It's, it's, like there's no, <laughs> there's no news value. There's no pu- thoughts of the public. It's literally just like what is. It's just thought of as entertainment and measured in terms of like, uh, in terms of engagement and and viewers. Yeah. And um, the extent to which like print media, you know, which is now obviously all online media, is uh, following in a type of like metrics metric shape type of model maybe less so you know maybe that's more of a stretch but then again like i don't i'm not privy to any of these meetings you know i just sit in my basement so maybe maybe it's more so than you two don't hear from editors like good engagement you know no good page views all that in fact i think it's quite taboo to bring it up really you know yeah the only time i can tell is when i ask or when i look it up myself you know but Certainly have never had like a talk about uh, here's you're getting great engagement. I don't think some people say it like offhanded, you know, but right. there's never a convert. There's never like a conversation. That's like, let's talk about your, you know, <laughs> let's talk about have your you ever patience. Had that, Tammy? I haven't, did but you, I think, well, I'm also, did you have that at Al Jazeera friend. America? I think we were kind of aware of things, but there wasn't pressure. Okay. But I think yeah. your experience and my experience is unusual, honestly, talking to other friends in different places. Like yeah. if you're trending, you know, not about like bands that suck, but just like articles you write, like if you're trending, <laughs> does that seen as like a good thing? You're part of the conversation. Yeah, I think for sure. I yeah, think like, yeah, for instance, there'll be things thing. that go around in newsroom that'll be like, these were the top 10 stories in terms of clicks this week. And then digest, like trying to structurally figure out why and can we do better? Right, and, you right, know, right. and I don't know if there would be too many editors who would literally say, we're going to change your entire beat or whatever, because this gets more engagement. But, you know, I think there are implied pressures. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's uh that type of meeting, I guess, like that they had in the movie, I've just never been in one, you know, and I don't think that editors really make decisions based on that. There are people on the business side who might ask certain people on the mass head to maybe try to do that type of stuff more. But I thought that like, I don't know. But then again, I've only worked at some of these places that would 
and some of these places that would be like the least likely to do that type of stuff because they would see it as like uncouth right you know um i've never worked at like a buzzfeed or a gawker or anything like that and maybe it's more like that but again then again like it wasn't like they were trying to represent gawker or buzzfeed in this right like they were right. talking about a newspaper the, but um, the other thing that happens is like the story i forget exactly but it's like the president has the ability to kill the story you know like they run it they like run it past the president first and when the president <laughs> denies it they like they can't run the story anymore and i think that's probably something that sirota you know just like has some experience with how uh you know, political journalists oh, yeah, might have to might right. like rely upon certain candidates. I don't know, maybe like trading favors with candidates in terms of what stories. For they're sure, running. like yeah. access oh, journalism sure. and national security stuff too. Where and that happens with you know, the Pentagon too. will green light or not. Remember, like yeah. Stephen A. Smith tells a story about how he didn't run something about Allen Iverson. Um, he like was he like figured something oh, out because he was Allen drunk Iverson or something. And, yeah, or something like that. And then like Allen Iverson came and talked to him and. Stephen A didn't run the story, you know, yeah. and Stephen A sees it as this like moment of like where he realized that Alan Iverson was his friend, you know, and not necessarily like a subject. Stephen yeah. A Smith's stories about journalism are amazing. Like he has, he tells the best journalism stories. Because Wait, he so actually, does he say that as a, as like a, yeah. is, is that like a confession? Like an, How does he kind of a tell head. the story? It's sort of, it's sort of both, you know? You know, like it's it's essentially basically saying that there's a human element to re- being a reporter too. Yeah. You know, when you cover an athlete mm-hmm. for so long, and um, and that, but there are also transactions that you make, right? right? Like that that you don't run this one so that you can run the next one that's bigger. And everybody, every beat reporter does that at some level. Sure. Yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, his story, his stories about journalism are the best because, like, he really did start out covering like high school sports in North Carolina, and then like moved his way all the way up you know, at yeah. every single like level of the job. He didn't skip a level of the job, you know. Wow, I love it. Um, <laughs> like, um, okay, I guess he's like anti-Asian or something. We're supposed to condemn no, why? That, but what do you say? Remember, he said that stuff about Shohei Otani. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. We need an American oh, star. You know. Yeah. Um, okay. So, uh, what about? Okay. Last thing that we'll talk about. I feel like we're running out of steam here. Um, it might be <laughs> my fault, but the. Um, okay. What about this? I want to talk about this one sentence in particular. The plot unfolds from this negative institutional premise, flattening media to the propaganda model proposed in Ed- Edward Herman and Noam Chomsky's manufacturing consent. On this model, the dem- dominant mass media system consists of financialized corporate media conglomerates. Driven by advertising revenue and stock value appreciations. Is that really the propaganda model? That it, is that an accurate description? I've read manufacturing consent. It seems like that may be like a reduction in some ways, right? Of hmm. what they were saying. I haven't. It's mostly like how it aligns with state power in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, you know. Yeah. Um, it's about, yeah, East Timor. Right. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. And that East seems Timor more. Latin America, right? <laughs> like, yeah, totally. Yeah. Like it's less the the corporate influence than the coziness, right. like with the Meryl Streep's character. I think I think right. the Chomsky model is shorthand for this idea that there's like a secret, you know, secret layer of society that you don't see, and yeah. and it's shattered shroud and secrecy as opposed to, um, you know, the the debate was like Foucault would say like, oh, it's not secret or hidden; it's everywhere and it's working you know, all over, all, you know, all the time and we're all complicit. So I think, I think it's just like a shorthand for like a sort of classic, cons- not conspiracy, but um, 
kind of conspiracy. <laughs> Basically, like these, yeah. these powerful institutions are non-democratically controlling us, as opposed to um, actually the problems of society are, are 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 hidden in plain sight, and we're all you know we're all complicit. Like he's not saying that; they're saying like, no, it really is this room full of like five people. Yeah. Right, exactly. My thoughts about Chomsky, about manufacturing consent, much like my thoughts on dating, have like aged poorly with time. You know, like I feel like I listen, I listened to a lot of it recently, and sort of revisited it, and I don't know. Like it's strange because he has such a singular focus on the New York Times and New York Times columnists, right? And like he seems oh. to to talk about that at the exclusion of every single other piece of media right? like not he, even it's not like when Leonardo DiCaprio. the book came out that like you know like edward r murrow wasn't around or like you know like or whoever that yeah. guy like or uh who's that guy who everyone talks about as being like the great news anchor um cronkite, cronkite walter cronkite. cronkite like it's not like walter cronkite wasn't around or peter jennings wasn't around right like uh chomsky is completely it seems like very uninterested in that sort of stuff except as like you know side notes almost to like this idea of what the new york times is doing at all times and uh, it seems kind of limited, right? It almost feels like a lot. I, like you can see where a lot of Twitter gets its like, you know, left Twitter that criticizes media all the time where it gets its cues from, right? Like it's sort of this singular obsession and then this sort of like vaguely conspiratorial idea that like these things are happening. I find the Foucault, like, and I think that for during the time that Chomsky was writing this, it was much, it was easy to think because like you did have like Henry Kissinger, for example, right? Like, so you could like completely think of, like come up with this idea that there was this like, these secret actors doing all these things but now i don't know like who would that even be you know yeah i mean i guess a counter example like the be, biden administration what? the counter example would be like veep like you think there are all these experts in the room but actually they're all idiots um right and, right i find that much more right. convincing. <laughs> like yeah yeah that's probably more realistic yeah, like Right, like, like this idea that there's this like hand that is like sort of influence everything. <laughs> right? like, hand. Obviously, like the media does work to like manufacture consent. Yeah, like, there's no doubt about that. But like, it's much more chaotic. Than I don't know. I thought about that stuff a lot during the Bernie work. campaign, though. So that probably scarred David Sorda too. The the sort of very clear really? biases in media regarding the yeah. candidates. Oh, post? You mean post? No, like during the especially the during. 2020. I mean anti Bernie, yeah, anti Bernie. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, and the sort of like. You know, objective story is about Bernie's second house or something, you know, it's like, <laughs> well, I think that that is because the people that's more of like a, the people who go to work at these yeah. places are much more centrist yeah. than, and that like, there is like this sort of like way of thinking that like the only way it's similar to this Didion thing, right? Like where like every journalist in some ways is aspirational towards a type of objectivity that it doesn't just involve their political beliefs or their, their actual work. It involves like a way of living right like it's almost like a who is like how do you live as an as a, like an objective person right like this is yeah like jake tapper is like the great cosplayer of like objectivity right like if you want to look at like this like <laughs> chisel face man like basically being i support the troops right. god damn it and then like also like saying like black lives matter right like that's like that's like jake tapper right? like, <laughs> it's like this performative objectivity and I think that that actually is probably like like looms in the brains of a lot of journalists at all times, yeah. right? And so the way to like sort of be performatively objective in some ways is to like take on what conventional wisdom is, which is something that Chomsky does talk about quite a bit in manufacturing consent. Yeah. And like, you know, like from 2016, and 2016, obviously, like the conventional wisdom was that like Bernie had no chance. He was just this old guy from Vermont yeah. and that like, you know, the institutions had chosen Hillary Clinton. 
that sort of stuff is real. <laughs> I just think that it's like that people, yeah, that it is just the types of people who do well, right, and want to go into those types of positions tend to have that type of mentality. But they are in their own way making their own chaotic decisions. You know, right. now right, right, the right. question <laughs> is why did why are only these people working at these types of places? Well, you know, like that's more of a class issue than anything else. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. It's not. But maybe uh, Herman and Chomsky's theory operates more clearly in the context of, for instance, like military coverage. Yeah. Because that right. you know, and I think they were very much concerned with that, like the manufacturing of consent around yeah. like the military industrial complex and all of our interventions around the world. And that still seems to be fairly tight because of the way sourcing works and reporting works in those contexts. I mean, in general, I feel like media does cover climate change seriously, right? At least, I don't know, in the last few years. Yeah. So it isn't a I case so. of maybe there is a criticism of how, the, how they used to treat it. I don't know. Did they treat it differently in the 80s and 90s, you know, in a denialist kind of way? I don't think they did. I think it was more like it's always like the public opinion is one is in one place, but it's you know the energy industry that's in a different place. And that's kind of the real barrier, I think. Um, I don't know. I don't. Yeah. I don't think it's like, you know, NBC News is in charge of climate, uh, in charge of like global warming. You know. Yeah, it's sure. interesting because, like, you know, Maybe like, like the of every single. Like, if you go into a newsroom, for example, right? Like, there's always a sort of question that's asked at some point when you're in the newsroom, which is like, "How do we cover climate change? Everyone's so bored by it. You know, how many glaciers that are melting can we really throw a?" this glacier is fucking melting motherfuckers headline on and get people to care. Cause nobody cares, you know, like nobody clicks on those types of stories and um, nobody, you know, like people just don't engage with them. The only way that you can do it is through a type of disaster porn, right? Like um, which is, uh, you know, very effective, I think, but you can only do so much disaster porn, right? Climate-based <laughs> disaster porn. Right. And so I don't know. I don't think anyone has the answer to that question. Like at Vice, you know, we did this thing where we tried to do climate change by doing like basically making it a travel show. You know, like we would send this like correspondent to different places around the world. And she'd be like, I'm in Iceland. You know, I'm in Greenland. You know, <laughs> here's this glacier that's melting. Yeah, like within like, within like 50, no offense to anybody who works in this sort of stuff. You guys know that this is true. Within 15 seconds, like you would either be into the piece or you'd be like, this is a story about a glacier. You know, and it's not the pro fault of the p producers who made the show. Right. It's not the fault of the correspondent. It's just that like people turn off once they figure out it's about another melting glacier. <laughs> yeah. right? And so um, I don't know. It's like an impossible situation. I actually thought some of the stuff that they did on Vice was like kind of good, you know, yeah. but like it's still like sort of it's still sort of dragged down by that like same problem. Right. It's very easy to sell a lot of different types of stories like scandal or whatever. But yeah, you know. Climate change is hard. Yeah. Or I think it's also, it's the exhaustion around understanding those environmental conditions, but then how do you bring it back to the bad actors, the fossil fuel companies totally. and the politicians right. who are bought out by those companies. And those all, stories also tend to sit in different sections of the paper and have yeah. different, you know, kind of power dynamics behind them and getting made. And so I think, I think that's really, really hard yeah. you know, and for readers and everyone to digest. And I mean, and I think that, that is actually one of the good things about this movie that you can sort of, I mean, point to, of course, as like silly as the movie is, like in potentially starting conversations with some people about making some of those connections. Yeah, but I'm also at this point where like, I don't know. I don't know if this is the wrong opinion. Like, 
I don't really think like my recycling choices matter that much, you know, in a way that they, I used to well, care. Well, that's the point, right? I used to care I in mean, the I 90s, think they, right? But I, and I do recycle. I think it still matters, but like, sure. because of it's, but it's, it's, know, a, but it's a sort of like resignation, you know, that yeah. unless we like transition to renewable with huge investments from all these governments, like me recycling or not, or me taking the bus or not, you know, does it is basically like, is a matter of indifference, you know, to the... But isn't that actually what this movie does well in a way? Because it Hopefully. doesn't actually focus on the individual yeah, conduct yeah, yeah, right. piece. It's actually more about like, oh yeah, this Isherwood character right. is like but then it's in like, bed with the president. What can I do? What can... Right. You know, so then that goes to your point about like, right. do you, are you left hopeful or hopeless right. after right. this movie? And I'm not, <laughs> I guess I'm not quite yeah. sure either. I do recycle for the record, but you know... <laughs> On that note, <laughs> proud of you, Andy. <laughs> yeah, on, on a good note to make all of you like Andy. Um, oh my god, these people are so mad at me on Twitter. <laughs> He's checking his Twitter. You don't talk about it. No, I mean, no, I just, I just was trying to click through to Zencaster, and then I looked, and then I was like, "What the fuck, guys? Calm down." You know, I'm glad that you like are, are so in love with Twitter's terms of service. You know. But guess what else they use the terms of service to do? Like, you know, block fucking news out of Palestine, you know, like all sorts of horrible shit that now you're caping for because it's Marjorie Taylor Greene. Who gives a shit? You know, these companies are bad. You know, watch, watch a great movie about tech. Like, don't look up. <laughs> <laughs> like, you'll know. Like, you know. On our show. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. I don't know. I can't even talk about this anymore. It's making me so mad, but I refuse. I doubled down today. I'm going to triple down on Thursday because I'm writing about it. You know? Okay. I just don't, I don't <laughs> shit. Like, I can lose half of my followers. I don't care. I don't care about, like, you know, like, these people are crazy. You can't defend any principles of free speech anymore, you know? Because, like, everybody just, like, has learned this meme of, like, saying, nothing is a free speech issue unless you're in jail. And it's like, what the f- What are we talking about, you know? Like, obviously, you don't want to give these tech companies, like, more censorious powers because they're going to use it on the fucking left the second that they can, right? Yeah. And so, like, if you if everybody's okay with saying, "Oh, well, I'm sorry, this person violated the terms of service, and therefore they're totally deplatformed," like, what happens to activists and shit like that that, like, you know, violate the terms of service, right? Like, I mean, come on, like, this sort of shit is very obvious, isn't it? Am I wrong here? I'm. Be- I don't really know what you're talking about. I know that you're in a Twitter fight over something. Well, let's yell. Okay. Yeah. Maybe we could talk it's about like, it next. It's, time. it's we can talk about it next. What the one thirty mark? Should we yeah. do a thumbs up, thumbs down? I would say thumbs up. Down. <laughs> Andy is is hereby excluded from working on any other. Uh, if Adam McKay wants to make a movie about China, you're out. You're out, Andy. <laughs> say, say goodbye to that. Ha- say goodbye to that house in the uh, to that house in Bucks <laughs> County or whatever, wherever people in Philadelphia buy second homes. All right, Tammy. Tammy, uh, thumbs up or down? Two thumbs, thumbs up. up. Two One thumbs thumb up. up. One thumb up. Yeah, I'm giving a thumb up because I just I appreciate the effort. And I actually do think that, like, there are things in the movie that actually are not that, you know, I think people don't give enough credit to, like, some of the statements that were implicitly in there, you know, about tech and capital and what what is inevitable under the system. I don't know. Like, I don't know. But then again, maybe uh, like you could argue very, that. It's also very, I laughed a lot. Days, so. Yeah, it was funny. It was like funny-ish. 
right? It got, yeah, it was like give it a funny mixture wish. of laughter and cringing, you know? Yeah. I laughed The, a lot. the beginning was funnier. I don't think it passes the Rachel Bechdel test, which we didn't talk about. I, What's that? But, Who's Rachel um, Bechdel? Rachel. The Rachel Bechdel. <laughs> the Ellison Bechdel See, that test. that was a joke. <laughs> oh, okay. I was like, what's happening? <laughs> anyway. Which is what? Like one, my, one minority in every scene or what is it? Well, I guess it would be like the regular Bechdel test is two women talking to each other right. in a meaningful way about something other than men. Oh yeah, yeah. So there's one black character, and he's just and there's one on black an character who's time. somewhat inert yeah. and just. <laughs> oh yeah, but there's her boyfriend is like, um, Winslow or something like that. He's right? there for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Anyway, thank you for listening to our show. Uh, we do this every week. If you want to support the show, you can go to goodbye.substack.com. If you want to follow us on Twitter, it's at ttsgpod. I haven't looked at our Twitter in a while. How many followers? We have a lot of... Um, a lot of followers now. Um, and then... Uh, if you... What? That's right. Um, yeah. All right. That's enough. Oh, if you want to email the show, email us at time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Most people don't... Or, and if you'd like to join our Discord community... You can sign up on our Substack, and then you can, it'll show you how to send us an email, and then we can give you the link to the Discord community, which is still going strong. Yeah, a lot of conversations on there. Mm-hmm. Um, today I was reading a conversation about. Like, I don't know. There's a lot of book conversation on there, which I actually always appreciate. Yeah, you know? a very literary Discord. Um, okay. All right. Well, we will see you next week. Bye. Que sé con me, con me, con mi luna, no sé cuidar.